It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetzen. Thanks for allowing us uh, into your lives to spend a little bit of time with you. I think you're really going to like this because uh, we got an exciting guest uh, in David McCormick. He ran for the Senate there, lost to Oz in the primary in, in Pennsylvania. A lot of people anticipate he might run again. He hasn't said definitively, but um, you ought to know about this guy because he has an amazing background. He's, he's written a book. It's called Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. And he is really the epitome of the American dream. Uh, I think some people look at somebody who's been ultra successful and they kind of shun him and, and say, oh, you know, he, he obviously had it easy. This guy did not have it easy. And what he did and how he did it, I look forward to having the discussion. Uh, I've met him, but I don't really know him. And I hope at the end of the podcast, you have a better sense of what he's writing about in this book, uh, Superpower and Peril, but also just uh, the person, uh, because I think he's going to continue to be a a player in politics in general, and his success story, I think he can be emulated, and there's a lot of lessons to learn there. So I look forward to having the discussion with David McCormick uh, coming up, but uh, we're also going to highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere, but I want to kick things off by uh, highlighting the news, and there's lots happening in the news. Oh my goodness, lots happening in the news, big news, important news. Um, but there's some stories that I think are also very, very important that slide under the radar or get uh, lost in the shuffle just because there's even bigger news out there. So I want to go back and just make sure that we're touching on some of those because, you know, I share these stories and talk about these things with my wife and whatnot and others. And they're like, wait, I, I didn't quite see that I, I, because it's, but anyway, regardless, um, a couple of things in the news. Um, in Connecticut, according to foxnews.com, there are a lot of families who have been victims of crimes. And I, you know, I, I can't even imagine uh, having to go to the horrific lengths that families go to when a loved one is on the receiving end is a victim in a crime. I, I would argue that there are victims not only who were physically there, who were physically abused or murdered or whatever it might be, but there are also the family members who love them, they care for them, they're their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their friends, their husbands, wives, whatever it might be, those two are victims because they didn't sign up for this. They, you know, a lot of these things are random, some are premeditated. Um, and I don't think people ask, for instance, to be on the receiving end of a murder well, in Connecticut, thanks, Connecticut, um, the victims and their families are absolutely outraged because 44, 44 murderers had their sentences commuted, accusing the, the, the victims, accused the Board of Pardons and Paroles of amending its policy to favor the state's most violent criminals. How is it that we have 44 in mass murderers? Not allegations of murders, convictions of murders, or plea deals of murders. And then to have those 44 murderers have their sentences commuted? Are you kidding me? You know, there's a lot of, um, there has been discussion in the past, three strikes, you're out, 
um, you know, truth in sentencing. Some people get death penalty and they say, oh, well, we're, we're opposed to the death penalty because life in prison, that ought to be good enough. The problem is with life in prison, it doesn't always end up being life in prison because they get released in mass. Gavin Newsom, I think there were 700 people that were released. I'd have to check the number. Okay. But this is the problem with the soft on crime, progressive Democrats of today. And for the Connecticut to have 44 murders, have their sentences commuted. You can see how victims and people that are in favor of law and order are just outraged by that. All right. Next item in the news, uh, Gavin Newsom, it's hard to go through these, uh, discussions without talking about the governor of California and his radical views on life. New news uh, a little while ago was that he was um, uh, mobilizing uh, or thinking of mobilizing the National Guard to start building these mini homes. You know, you maybe you've been on one of those television networks and or online or Pinterest or whatever it might be, and you see these mini homes. They look kind of fun, you know. And I can understand where somebody who is homeless, they can't afford the exorbitant rent or exorbitant uh, uh, homes in pick anywhere, uh, the price of homes, it, it's under, it's hard. Not everybody can go out and buy a $700,000 home and you're getting less and less for your money. And maybe this is part of the solution for the homeless problem, but to mobilize the national guard to do this and tackle this, are you telling me the national guard doesn't have anything else to be working on preparing for? natural disasters, deployments, all kinds of things. And they're going to be leveraged to do mini homes. Uh, just uh, this governor, I don't think it's a long-term plan. And if you look at the hundreds of thousands of people that are homeless, how in the world is this a long-term solution? I mean, can you take care of 20 people? Can you take care of 40 people? And some people would argue and say, well, yeah, it's worth it if it's just 40. Okay. You have a systemic homeless problem and you have no solution other than giving them free things. And I, that to me is not going to solve the problem long-term. Okay, but now it's time to bring on the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. I wanna go back, not too long ago, but I wanna go back to the United States Attorney General Merrick Garland. He had the gall to promise after, remember there was, the hundreds of thousands of people have died with fentanyl that's coming across the southern border. There's human trafficking. There are people on the terrorist watch list. There are an untold number of horrific things happening coming across our border. Four Americans evidently went south of the border to get a medical procedure. Two were killed. Two were able to get back. Horrific. We should all be outraged. That should never happen. Okay. But suddenly, even though hundreds of thousands of people have died, even though countless number of people have been raped along the, the way as the coyotes, the drug cartels bring these people across the border, all those things, two people got killed. And now the attorney general says, and this is a quote, he promised if that the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and the FBI, quote, are doing everything possible to dismantle and disrupt and ultimately prosecute the leaders of the cartels and the entire networks that they depend on, end quote. I do not believe that. I do not believe that even comes close. Yeah, I would love to have a survey of the rank and file members of the DEA and the FBI. Is the Attorney General, is the United States of America doing, quote, everything possible 
to dismantle and disrupt and ultimately prosecute the leaders of the cartels. That is the quote from the Attorney General, Senate testimony, and I don't believe a word of it. I think they're given a, a tacit handful of people working on it. I'm sure we could find agents, men and women who have put their lives on the line, are trying to do the best thing. But to suggest that the United States of America is doing everything possible, that it does not even come close. Doesn't even come close to the truth. That to me is stupid. If you think we're that gullible, Mr. Attorney General, put up a serious fight. Take these people down. Don't let the cartels have operational control because they do right now. All right, that's bringing on the stupid. It's time to transition because we actually have a person who wants to uh, make a difference in the world, has made a difference in the world, has written a book about how to make sure that the United States of America is the strongest it can possibly be. He's written a book. It's called Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. His name is David McCormick. So let's give him a call and dial up David McCormick. Hello. Hey, David, this is uh, Jason Chaffetz. Hey, Jason, how are you? Thanks so much for letting me uh, intrude on your day and, and give you a shout. I do appreciate it. Thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm anxious to talk to you. I'm excited about you and learning more about you. You know, I've, I've met you briefly. I've kind of seen you from afar. But now you got this new book. You got a lot, of, uh, a lot out there, a lot to talk about. And um, so, listen, I, I appreciate you joining us and uh, just want to talk a little bit more about your background and where you came from, where you're going, and, and life lessons. And, and tell us a little bit about this book, Superpower in Peril, about a battle plan to renew America. You've had a lot of success. Why write a book? Well, yeah, listen, I, I mean, maybe if I would have known what it was going to take to write a book, I, I'm not sure I would have embarked on the on the journey. But, you know, I started writing the book a couple of years ago before I ever um, decided to run for the Senate. And the reason was because I felt like the country was headed in the wrong direction, economically, uh, national security wise, spiritually. And, and 80 percent of Americans agree. They think the country's headed in the wrong direction. And so that was the reason for the book. But, you know, the book has a pessimistic title, Superpower and Peril, but it's an optimistic book because uh, decline, American decline is a choice, but so is renewal. And, um, and so this book is about a plan for renewal and what it takes to renew America. And we've done it over and over again. And so I, I, I wrote the book so, because I wanted to talk about, you know, a plan to educate our people, to confront China and to secure America. And, uh, and then I got about two-thirds of the way through it, and then I decided to run for the Senate. So I had to put the book down right. and run for the Senate. As you know, I, I sadly fell a few votes short. But, uh, but when I got done with that, I came back to the book. And it was so much better to finish it after the campaign because all the things that I was worried about and all the things I was pessimistic about, but also all the things that I felt optimistic about, I saw in, on the campaign trail. And so I try to include some of that in the book. Yeah, you know, there's nothing better than getting out on the campaign trail, going town by town, city by city, small groups, large groups, you know, diners. It doesn't matter. You, you learn about America. You learn about your state. You learn what people are really concerned about. And it's, it, it's interesting what they don't ask. And it's interesting what they do ask. And um, you just... There's no better lesson than than actually being out there and interacting. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And my you know, my big takeaway is, which was a lesson to me 
but also I think, you know, our, our conservative party is they want to look forward. They want to, they want solutions for these problems that are affecting their uh, everyday lives. And, you know, it's getting harder and harder to go paycheck to paycheck with inflation and, you know, the fentanyl crisis in Pennsylvania and the crime in this, in the cities. And, and so they want they want leadership that's going to fix those problems. And that was my big takeaway. So, look, when people go out and vote, and I don't care whether it's your homeowners association or your county commission or the United States Senate. I mean, they're putting a lot of trust in somebody individually. And um, so let's go back. I want to go back to I want to start with I was born in and then kind of walk us through um methodically what what life was like for you growing up because you had immense i mean success and service in the military you've had it in the business world what but go back to those formative years and kind of tell us what life was like for little david mccormick yeah well it's thanks for let me talk about it i i uh i'm like i think a sixth generation pennsylvanian so i'm a scotch irish pennsylvanian my uh, family forebears moved to pennsylvania and they they grew up mostly in the western part of Pennsylvania. So uh, my mom was born in Punxsutawney, and my dad was born of, of Punxsutawney Phil. And my dad was born in a little town called Plumville, uh, right outside of Indiana. And I was born outside of Pittsburgh. And so we were western Pennsylvanians, but my mom and dad were both teachers. And my dad took a job uh, eventually in the northeastern part of the state. And so while I was born in Pittsburgh, I grew up in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, which is the anthracite region of Pennsylvania, mostly immigrant families that came to work in the mines and and the mills and the and the manufacturing towns around northeastern Pennsylvania. And my town was Bloomsburg, and Bloomsburg had a college in it uh, where my dad worked in and was the president. And um, it had a big mill, which was the most employed most of the workers called the McGee Carpet Mill. And uh, you know this was rural Pennsylvania, so this is the kind of place that. The Monday after Thanksgiving, the, they get the kids off of school because that's when you go hunt deer. And it was the kind of place that uh, Friday night lights was, I mean, the whole town came for the right, football games, right. like football and wrestled. And um, and in the summers, I baled hay. We had a, a farm and um, we had a Christmas trees on the farm. I trimmed Christmas trees and uh, I worked as a busboy in the local restaurant. And it was just an idyllic way to grow up. And, uh, you know, we, we felt blessed and, uh, I wanted to play Penn state football, like any self-respecting young boy growing up in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and, uh, I got recruited to West point instead, uh, to wrestle and play football. And, and I didn't really have any military connection because nobody in my family had been in the military for a couple generations. And my dad said, you got to apply. I, you know, you have to make your own choice, what's best for you, but you got to apply. And I applied and t- to my surprise got in. That changed my life because even though I hadn't planned on it, my whole little town came out and said, this was a big deal. It was in the newspaper, you know, first kid in decades to go to an academy. And that started me on my way. Uh, So I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but that that defining those first 18 years of growing up in Pennsylvania, um, you know, rural Pennsylvania, working, uh, being part of that. And then the military that sort of shaped my life and everything that followed is just a result of those first, you know, 18 years. So let's, let's kind of go into a couple of those things. First of all, I don't know. I, I think I mentioned this to you, but my dad grew up in, he was born in DC, but his, his dad was, my grandfather was the, uh, was an FBI agent and uh, stationed in Philadelphia. So 
my dad actually grew up uh, in Germantown, and he did end up going to Penn State. He was not on the the Penn State football team, but he was the manager of the Penn State football team. Like he scheduled their travel, he did all this stuff, and and um, his uh, ride through um, uh, Penn State was, was on the football team, but as the, the the student manager of the team, and he did that, and it, great memories for him before he kind of went out west and and uh, joined the Air Force and did some things like that. But yeah. And I remember my dad, we, my brother and I, Alex, got in the back of the car with him, and he took us to Germantown, took us to Penn State. We drove through Amish country. We did the whole thing. We loved it. It was, it was great. The formative years in Pennsylvania were good to him. Good to me, too. I, I know just what you mean. Did you have brothers, sisters? And, and you I were obviously one... pretty good in sports. If you were playing football and wrestling, uh, yeah, what did you learn from sports? You know, I had one person in my life that I talk about in the book, uh, which was my high school football coach. And this, uh, of all the people I've, I've had in my life, this guy probably made the biggest difference. I was um, in my early years of high school, freshman, and sophomore years, I, I played on the football team, but I wasn't very good. And um, I kind of rode the bench. And my sophomore year, whenever the team was losing badly or winning badly, <laughs> winning <laughs> decisively, they put me in in the fourth quarter. I played defense. And so I would always hustle and I made a, a bunch of good tackles at the end of these games, but I was, you know, probably third or fourth strength, something like that. And there was a new coach. The coach got fired at the end of my sophomore year. The football team wasn't, wasn't very good. And there was a new coach who came in and his name was Tom Lynn. And he was a local kid that had grown up, played football in college. And he was just a tough guy. He was a shop teacher at, at a local high school. And uh, he, uh, he watched films all summer and he saw this kid that came in at the end of every game and would you know make make big tackles but but wasn't on the field for most of the game and and he so he figured out that was me and he called me and he brought me into his office in the summer he said listen i think you have a place in this team as as the starting linebacker but you've got to work you know you got to put weight on you got to work in camp and so i did that i worked so hard and at the end of camp this was shocking to me he named me co-captain of the team really now, this was was the bench warmer who, who gets to be co-captain. And he saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And he was um, a wonderful man, but he's unbelievably tough and ruthless. And uh, so we got about halfway through the season and the team was doing well, but not that well. And I started to get a lot of press uh, where, you know, I was doing well and getting lots of tackles. And I was on the front page of the local newspaper. And, uh, and that weekend we had a game and it was a pouring rainy game. And, uh, and, and we just looked terrible in the first half and he came into the locker room and he just went, you know, went hard against everybody and, but not me, didn't mention me. Then right at the end of it, he said, Hey Dave, by the way, I've been reading those clips about you in the newspaper and boy, oh boy, you're really showing your stuff. I mean, just the opposite. <laughs> and I was just shrinking, Jason. I mean, I just couldn't escape it. And uh, and he was relentless. And every you know, every day you pushed, he'd have you push harder. And so uh, it just made you realize when when you're first of all, you saw something in me I didn't see in myself. Second, there was no quarter. If you're a leader, you're responsible. And uh, if we're losing and we're not playing well, the captain's responsible. And, uh, and so we continued and we got pretty good and we won the championship the next year. And 
I was the all-state linebacker, and uh, you know, it turned out to be an amazing thing. And and when I went to West Point, I um, we went in there in the first day at West Point, and all the ca- new cadets sit in uh, sit in a big auditorium, and they say, "How many people here were first in their class?" Everybody sticks, you know, a bunch of people stick right, their hands right. up, not me, not me. Who was president of the class? A bunch of people stick their hand up, not me. And he eventually gets to who's captain of the football team. And I put my hand up and I, I remember thinking, but for Tom Lynn, this would have never been true. I would have never seen that in myself. So sports really left an imprint, but both uh, what it takes to win, what it takes to lead, but also a bit of the agony of defeat because, um, you know, you learn if you if you're a competitor, you learn to hate losing. You learn to despise losing. And so uh, so I learned a lot about life uh, in those first couple of years in, in uh, sports in Bloomsburg. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with David McCormick right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Do you think that happens now? I mean, I'm sure it does in pockets of America. I doubt you go into some of the rural parts of America. and that, But the wokeism that has enveloped and that you just kind of see in this drumbeat daily, I, I, I wonder if those types of formative experiences are even possible in a good portion of our country today. I think, I think they're in, increasingly rare. And uh, I agree with you. And I talk about this in my book, Superpower and Peril, where I talk about institutions you know when uh, de tocqueville went across uh america and wrote the you know the famous book on democracy he talked about all these little institutions you know fire halls and communities right. yeah. and in pennsylvania institutions like football and of course the military is one of the most binding institutions in our country and i, I saw that in the campaign chart you could always relate to people in the military but all those institutions jason the schools which teach a history of a of america that you and i wouldn't recognize and you know really are teaching our kids to be ashamed of america that america was a country conceived in sin the military you know i i say this sadly as a former army officer but under the biden administration the um the army released its climate strategy before it released its war fighting strategy <laughs> uh, you know we see it in business with like the fundamentals of merit uh, the notion of the allocation of capital for profit, you know, some basic fundamental building blocks of the American experiment are being um, tested, challenged under siege. And I, I agree with you, the America we know and the institutions we know are slipping away. And and, and honestly, that's a big part of why I wrote the book and, and why I ran for the Senate. Just like you saw with the military, and, and first of all, thank you for your service, and thanks to all that have, have well. gone before us and served, and just, you know, thank you for, for your service. But, you know, when they're out there trying to figure out, you know, who's going to go to which bathroom, and then, you know, they're going to take the, the admission standards down, lower the number of push-ups you got to do, and because they can't seem to recruit anybody. And I, I, I just, that's a another topic for another day, but it is a a signal, a canary in the coal mine, if you will, that we have some serious fundamental problems if you can't get people to pass the physical fitness test to enter into the United States military. 
We're trying to build a war machine so we can all live safe, free, and prosperous and not just be the most politically correct. But anyway, I digress. All right, let's let's keep going down this I'm path. With you, so man. I'm so with you. You, you you you're coming out of this small town, you get into West Point. What would I mean, you learn a lot in West Point, but how did that change the trajectory of your life? Because inevitably those are such important formative years and you make a lot of decisions that affect the whole rest of the trajectory. So yeah. what did you learn there and where did that take you? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, there's so many lessons, but you know, there's a couple I'll, I'll highlight just ever so briefly. I mean, the first thing is, is West Point's motto, which is duty, honor country. And that, you know, that's, you know, my mom and dad were public servants, teachers, but that really has, has been part of my whole life is even when I've been in the private sector, it was always, you know, this notion of service and leadership. And and so that's one of the things West Point just knocks into your brain. And, you know, we're, we're you know, you're a patriot, I'm a patriot, there's many patriots, but boy, every day ingrained and we serve at the, you know, at the, we, we serve our country, we serve the whole purpose of your existence at West Point to serve. So that was a big one. The second one, is basic leadership. And of course, there's a, you know, a gazillion books written about leadership. But you know, the thing I learned there about leadership was that uh, you know, leadership is not about you, if you're going to say it in one sentence, it's about others. And so just little things that have carried me through my whole life, like the, when you get done with a road march and you know, you've been working all day, you go first and look at the people in your unit, the platoon, and make sure they don't have blisters in their feet because blisters get infected and it really can be debilitating before you look at your own feet. You know, when there's, you know, you've done a hard day and you want to go to the mess hall and eat, you know, the officer eats last, not first, because the, the men or the men and women in their command should be fed for just those basic leadership things that you lead by example, you're, you know, you're unselfish or uh, you're focused on others. And then the third thing, which, which man is so missing today. It is so missing. But I, I was in a platoon. When I first got there, I was 22 to the 82nd Airborne. I went from West Point to the 82nd Airborne. West Point has some of these same characteristics, but the Army really had it. Where you step in there, and you know, I'm a, a white kid from rural Pennsylvania and had gone to West Point. And in my platoon, there's a you know, there's a white kid from rural, rural Alabama. There's a, a, an African-American from Newark. There's a, a rich white kid from Boston who dropped out of college. You know, my platoon sergeant was this Puerto Rican guy who was 35. I was 22 at the time. This guy seemed like he was ancient, you know, 35. And his job was to keep the young lieutenant out of trouble. And during that entire time, I don't remember a single conversation about what, what anybody was, who was conservative, who was liberal. I didn't, I didn't feel any of that. I don't even remember talking about it. All I know is that we were committed to one another, to the country, to something bigger than ourselves and to each other. And when that same unit deployed to Iraq for combat, like it was, it was not, you know, there was no pettiness. There was no smallness. It was all about the country. And that kind of bond just, just doesn't exist today. It's partially because of the woke stuff that you're talking about. And uh, so anyway, those are the things that I take away from, from West Point and the army. And I, well, I wouldn't trade those days for, for anything in, in the world. No, you make a very important point here. I, when I was in Congress, I had a chance to go out in the San Jacinto, which was part of the Eisenhower carrier group there, um, just off the coast of Iran. Uh, kind of, and uh, went out there, spent the night, and 
I think if just I think I'm going to get the number wrong, but just over 200 um, sailors out there. And I was absolutely struck by the fact that most of the people on that ship were in their 20s. And just a handful of them were, you know, in their 30s and even less that, you know, they're just literally like on one hand, you know, a few 40 something year olds. And um, and yet such an important ship in a very volatile part of the world. But I looked at the cross section of people and here they were from every walk of life all throughout the country. And they were focused on their mission. And it was such a great thing. I mean, it was so amazing to see and feel how they were working together as a cohesive unit in part of a bigger strategy to support and defend the United States of America. And um, those types of lessons, those people are going to carry that out for the rest of their lives. And if anybody has a chance to go join the, the military and learn what you get to learn there or the National Guard or whatever it might be, I, that is such a vital part of the fabric of our country. It really is. I couldn't agree with you more, Jason. I, I, I really believe that. Okay, so you go out, you serve, you get deployed, but then talk us talk us through the next part of your life because you ultimately did the service, but then you had some you had some changes along the way too. What, you sure got did. married, right? And um, you've had kids. Yeah. You got pictures in your book, so I could see this beautiful family <laughs> of yours. I had so, some pictures. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I went to. Uh, you know the the funny thing I was teasing my my uh, dad about this the other night. Um, who that my mom and dad still live in Pennsylvania, but you know when people uh, and you described a friend when they think about you know your career, my career, and they describe it, it sounds like you know it just went from one good thing to the next. You know, right. and the, it was just a straight line of success. But that that's that's actually not what happened at all. And uh, and so what happened was I served in the military and. Um, I really, uh, really loved it and, and almost stayed. I had taken an assignment uh, in Korea after the, after I went to, I came out of West Point. I went to Ranger School. I went to Airborne School. I went to the 82nd Airborne. Um, you know, I trained there for three years. We got deployed to the Gulf. I spent almost a year in Saudi Arabia and Iraq as part of the first Gulf War. And I came back and the, the Army wanted to send me to Korea. And I, I volunteered to do that. And then the Army said they wanted to send me to graduate school after Korea. And so they wanted me to apply in advance. So I applied to graduate school. And when you write the essays in graduate school, you know, the essays say, what do you want to do with your life? And, you know, when I wrote the essays, none of them ended with, I want to be a career military officer. Or there was other things I wanted to do. And that prompted me to get out. And I had a year into grad school. It started, I decided I was going to go to grad school. And so I traveled for a year, Jason, uh, and nine months uh, to be to be sp specific. I traveled all around the world. I traveled through the Middle East and traveled through uh, – by Europe yourself or who did you go with? Myself. Yeah, I went to Turkey and Syria and Jordan and to the West Bank and then to Israel, spent a long time in Israel. Then I went on to Asia, I spent time in China. I talk about it in the book. So I was in China when there was no skyscrapers, there were two currencies. And and, and my, my dad was going through the roof at this point because my dad had been so happy about West Point. But right. he said, what are you thinking? You could have potentially been a general and you've lost your pension. 15 more years you would have had a pension. <laughs> Right. And uh, he couldn't believe this aimless guy. And then I went to grad school to thinking I'd be a professor. My dad was a professor and uh, I, I did a PhD. But when I got to the end, I said, oh, my God, I can't be a professor. Uh, and I, I, I decided that I was going to go into business. 
And so my dad and my brother, who was a straight arrow, my brother was four years behind me, who did everything perfectly. They would have Sunday night phone calls about what are we going to do about Dave? He can't seem to, he can't seem to find his way. And Jason, I'm just going to tell you, like I'm 57. I think it was just about 10 years ago that my dad finally said, you know, I think it's going to be okay. But it, <laughs> it took a while. Uh, but, uh, but I left grad school and I went to, back to Pittsburgh and I joined a, a consulting firm there for a couple years and then a small tech startup. And that tech startup, uh, we took public and I became the CEO of it. And we, we uh, had about a thousand people, 600 uh, jobs in Pittsburgh. And it was part of the Pittsburgh Renaissance, you know, where Pittsburgh had, you know, had a, a slow death when steel, when the steel industry died in, in um, the United States, or most of it died. And, uh, and this was sort of the re- reemergence of technology and advanced manufacturing and a number of things in Pittsburgh. And I, I was uh, married and had uh, four daughters, three of them in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and that was a great chapter. I lived in Pittsburgh for about a decade and it uh, was a big part of, uh, you know, helping be part of the city that, you know, became the, the Pittsburgh of today. And then uh, while I was there, uh, Governor Bush ran for, uh, for president. And I um, some, knew some people that were working for him and I helped write a couple of his speeches on national security. And, uh, and then he won uh, and went into, uh, went into the presidency, but I stayed in Pittsburgh and, and ran that company for another four years. And then I sold the company about the time that President Bush won his second term. And so I went into uh, the government at that point and had a couple jobs, one in the Commerce Department overseeing the technology exports, which is a big talk today. And I was, you know, in the early days talking about the fear of China stealing our intellectual property and and, uh, our technology. And so I wrote a number of articles and gave speeches about that. I was the Undersecretary of Commerce and then the Deputy National Security Advisor uh, and then ultimately the Undersecretary of Treasury. So in those four years, I got a lot of experience with China and global economics and uh, national security. And uh, a lot of the things that I'm talking about in the book, Superpower and Peril, are based on those experiences about how the world was changing then and has changed so much since then. So uh, even though I was back to where I started, even though it looked like it was a straight line, there was lots of uncertainty uh, uh, along the way and some failure, which we can talk about, but a good bit of failure too. Yeah. What do you learn from failure? You know, people always say kind of almost as a trite um, afterthought, oh, you know, failure is good. You always learn from it. But what did you learn from from failure? Because nobody wants (laughs) to go through it. Nobody likes it when it's happening. I had a whopper of a failure, which is, uh, was very public, which I went to, after the government, I went and worked at Bridgewater, which is a a big firm. And and a couple of years in, I was appointed the co-CEO. The guy who founded it was a guy named Ray Dalio. He asked me to be the co-CEO, which I thought I was ready for. I'd been CEO before and so forth. And about 18 months later, uh, he fired me. And, uh, you know, this is very public. It was in the Wall Street Journal and you know, here I was, I had, I had this, you know, great job in the government and went to Bridgewater and had been promoted very quickly. And so I was kind of mid forties. I hadn't really had any big public failures. I had a lot of small failures, but no, but this one was a whopper. And, uh, I didn't agree with it at the time. Still don't agree with it in many ways. And I was very disappointed. And I thought about leaving Bridgewater and I had these four little girls who had just been settled in a new place. And, uh, and so I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to just get them in a good place. I'm going to spend the next year or two 
staying at Bridgewater. The, uh, he asked me to stay, just didn't think I should be the CEO. And, uh, and I took a, a smaller job being in charge of, of our clients where I traveled around the country and, and the world and did that. And then, uh, you know, it started to take and I started to do a lot better and started to think about some of the lessons I had learned. And then five years later, um, uh, he asked me to be the CEO again. And, uh, you know, this time we had a better understanding of what it took to be the CEO and he had a better understanding of me. And, uh, I learned a lot of lessons. One of the lessons I learned was the need to drive change fast, faster. You know, it's easy to get easy. It's easy to be complacent. It's easy to think that things are okay and not, not make things happen fast enough and to really make change happen you got to be pretty pretty dramatic pretty radical but you got to make good change happen you got to rely right, on good right. people and give them realistic assignments and so um so man it was hard but 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 i learned to be a better leader i learned to be a more empathetic leader because once you've failed like that you learn um to see others failings and help them get through it and um i learned a lot of humility uh, because you know it's uh, when you fall on your face, you realize you're fallible, and and then I learn resilience and and strength. I feel much stronger now because I've failed and then succeeded than I think if I would have never failed and 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 then been able. It's, it's like sort of like the boxer who gets knocked down and then comes off the mat and uh, and wins the, wins the boxing match. That's that's sort of how it felt, and uh, and that's a great feeling, and you makes you a better leader. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with David McCormick right after this. No, there's a lot of truth to that. And, and you know, some these stories, these life stories about overcoming adversity and, and uh, you know, then you have decisions, right? You can, you can let it eat you up and spit you out and be the worst for it. But I'm convinced everybody goes through hardships. And I don't know whether it be alcoholism or addiction yeah. or, you know, a, an accident or you know, something's going to come your way yeah, or getting demoted in a very public way. I mean, those, those are all hard things to do, but, but let's fast forward a little bit. So, you know, you're having success, financial success. You got this beautiful family. And then one day you wake up and say, you know, honey, I think I've, I got this great <laughs> idea. I think we should... <laughs> You know, leave that and just put ourselves up there as a public punching bag and get the crap knocked out of us. I think it'd be really good for the family. How, how did that conversation go down? You know, it, it was a multiple conversations, but uh, but I, I was feeling in uh, I guess this was before, but really before uh, Senator Toomey decided he wasn't going to run again. I was I was feeling really increasingly alarmed about the direction of the country. And some people had, uh, and when when uh, Toomey said he was going to run again, a number of folks had reached out and said, "Hey, would I ever consider it?" And to be honest with you, we didn't. We didn't take it very seriously at the time. We just thought it would be too disruptive to our lives, just for the, for the reasons you've said. And then the Afghanistan thing happened. You know, this just disgraceful withdrawal. It's just so counter to everything I think about America, America's role in the world, the kind of behavior. That represents American values, and it just really made me made me sick to my stomach. And we started to think hard about it. And uh, we had some health issues in our family that we had delayed it. And you know, we eventually said, you know what, um, I we, we're, we, we've been blessed. Uh, both my wife and I, Dina, D Dina, as you know, Jason, she's 
you know, a, an immigrant from Egypt. She's a Coptic Christian. She, her family immigrated from Cairo to Dallas when she was five because they wanted to be able to practice their religious freedom here in the United States. And she's had this remarkable career in business and in government. And I've had a, um, you know, great opportunities and a great career. And we just thought we're, we've been blessed. And those who have been blessed, you know, more than others even have, have an obligation to, to serve and try to do the, our part. So that was why we jumped into it. And we, you know, we had never, I'd never run for office. Neither of us had, we had served in government, but we, we really didn't know the thing that you already knew, which is, man, it's like, uh, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. And uh, no. people asked me what it'd feel like. And I said, do you ever watch that movie Gladiator? And they said, yeah, yeah. When you know when Russell Crowe's in the middle of the arena and people are up there throwing things down at the arena and then like the tiger uh, trap comes open and the tiger jumps out and then he kills the tiger. And the next thing you know, the chariot comes. That's the way it felt. <laughs> so you've got to be ready for it. Yeah, and it was even on national television. Yeah. <laughs> on national television, that's right. Exactly. So um when you when you stepped away from it and and look, you were very gracious about it because and that was a darn close primary. Um when you stepped back and took a deep breath and maybe just kinda let the blood blood pressure come down a little bit, what were the positives, what were the negatives that you kinda walked away with from that? Well, it, yeah, as you said, it was um, we we lost uh, by 900 votes of yeah. 1.4 million cast um, yeah. after a 17 day recount. So, you know, the emotional ups and downs of that. So you need a little time to decompress. Yeah. But the by and large, there's a couple negative things I'll talk about, but it was almost uh, completely positive. Um, the experience. Um, the opportunity to understand my state and know it better than I ever had before. I put 30,000 miles on a pickup truck driving, you know, these little communities, diners and fire halls and VFWs. Right. And just the, the privilege to do that, to be able to do it, to, to know Pennsylvania better, to know America better, the reinforcement, the positive. So that was awesome. The new friendships, the, the, the understanding, the, the, the testing of myself, you know, I started as kind of a mediocre to poor candidate and i think i ended as a really strong candidate it's not easy to just as you know it's not easy to go from being a ceo to being a being a a candidate so um so it was great and we felt like we were in you know in pursuit of something that was honorable and good and courageous and so that was that was by and large the experience and that's why we wouldn't have, if we had to do it a hundred times over we do it every time the negative is that it's so um, it, it's so damn nasty, and uh, um, and you just get hit from all over the place to the point where I never even looked at social media. I would put out social media, but I would never look at the inbound because it's just it's just nasty, and um, and and that can be debilitating if you let it get that way, um, and and that was the biggest negative. And then the other negative is you know, it was a tough primary and, you know, you got to go out there in the arena and, and promote your ideas and your, and yourself. And, um, and that, you know, that's tough. So um, there was nothing, nothing that was surprising at some level, but the degree of nastiness in politics today, I think is uh, it's unfortunate. And even though I was proud to do it and glad I did it, I understand why a lot of great people choose not to do it because it's uh, it's not easy. My wife, Julie, and I, we've been married uh, 32 years. So I'm pretty good at, and she's really good at, when I walk around the corner, I can kind of see her face, and I 
pretty much know how things, what she's, you know, good, bad, problematic. And I, there's a number of times you'd walk around and look, I won my elections and I won them by huge margins. I was not nearly as close as, as your race was, but you know, I live in Utah, so it's, you know, it's a little different here. And, um, I would look at her and I'd say, you've been reading the comments, haven't you? Like, <laughs> don't read the comments. First of all, they're not true. There are bots that put spit things out there. And I don't care if you just say the the sun is important to life on earth. You're somebody's going to beat you up for that. Like you don't, don't read the comments. They're not true. Like just don't even do it. But they're like a magnet for, for us. You just can't, but uh, I know what you mean. It's so brutal and so personal. And you know what? I, I always took the attitude. You can beat the living crap out of me, but when it starts getting after your family and your kids or friends, it's like, there's no place in politics and just human decency. But, you know, you went through it. Others have gone through it. And I appreciate you doing that. And do hope that there are a lot of us that do hope that you run again, because I think you do have an awful lot to offer uh, the country and the, the the great state of Pennsylvania. You really thanks, do. Thanks for yeah, thanks for saying that. We move, obviously... You know, people say, are you thinking about running again? And the answer is, of course, you know, you, how could you not? Because right. if you, if you run because you believe you can, you can contribute and you believe that, um, you, you know, you have a responsibility to do so and you think you can serve and then you lose a close race, it's not like the motivation to serve goes away. Um, so, um, you know, I think we're, you know, both my wife and I are more committed than ever to serving. And then there's the question is what's the best way to do it? What's the best way for our family? Right. What's the best right. way that we have opportunity to do that? But, you know, a big picture in there's so often in life, you, you come to these crossroads and, and people choose not to take risk and not to, not to, to explore the thing that they've always wanted to do. And, you know, I'm, I feel fortunate that we did it and, um, no, no regrets. All right. Um, You've written a great book, Superpower and Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. You've done an awful lot of push-ups serving in the military. You don't go into the 82nd Airborne without doing all that. But I don't care how many push-ups and books you've written. These rapid questions i got to ask you, David. We'll see if you can get through them. Lay it on me, man. Lay it on me. All right. First concert you attended? Uh, first big one was Journey uh, uh-huh. in, the, uh, in, the, in the Eagle Stadium. Oh, that's legit right there. <laughs> Journey's coming to play our uh, uh, Stadium of Fire here in Utah on July 1st. Big concert, but um, you saw the legit Journey when they were that like... Steve, I think Steve, Steve Perry. Perry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but everything I hear about a Journey concert's good, so um, that'll be good. Yeah. But that's a good first concert because mine was Michael Jackson, Mile High Stadium in Denver. So that, you know, wow. I've got that going that's for me. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was your high school mascot? Uh, Panther, Bloomsburg Panthers. That's legit. I was a Middle Park Panther uh, in uh, Granby, Colorado. Was my graduating high school, and yeah, but we actually, you know, we, you and I, we had places that actually had cougars, mountain lions, panthers, if you will. (laughs) Some of these places, you know, they like. I love to be honest back. with you. Be honest with you. There's probably a better chance of seeing a panther in Utah than in uh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> or at least it was here in the United States of America. Let's, I'll give you that. Uh, 
so you named a few jobs earlier, but what was your first job? Not, hey, your mom and dad saying, hey, Dave, take the garbage out. Like, what was your first job where you got a paycheck? Well, my first one I got a paycheck was Paperboy. I was a Paperboy where I'd deliver in the neighborhood. How up. early did you have to wake up and do that? 5 a.m., something like that. I'd deliver papers before school. But the one that was really kind of special, this is maybe when um, – Maybe, maybe I knew that that there was a little a politics in me at this point because I was a busboy at the McGee Hotel. And the McGee Hotel was like the brunch place um, on Sunday mornings after church. And I would go in at like 4.35 on Sunday mornings and I would help the uh, the pastry chef make pastries. And then I was the busboy. But this was after Saturday night football games. Oh. So I would be, hardly be able to move because I'd be so banged up. But I would uh, go – uh, bust the tables. And, uh, you know, I get back in there and I'd start talking to everybody. And, uh, you know, the next thing I, the manager would come back and say, Hey, I know you're friendly with everybody in this restaurant, but you've got to bust the damn tables. So <laughs> still got to the clean the tables. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you still got to clean the tables. I don't know what you're running for, but clean the tables. <laughs> <laughs> What's your superpower? And what I mean is, you know, we all have certain things we can do better than others. And maybe yours is just busting tables, but What's the what's the David McCormick uh, superpower? I think it's grown. The one thing I'd say I do I I do better and better now is I want people with different opinions. I I want to get them in a room, and right. I am, am very good at drawing out the different sides of an argument and holding my own decisions at at back until I've heard all the facts. And I always used to feel like I had to argue my case. And when I became a CEO, I realized I don't have to argue the case. I just have to make the final decision. So everything I can do to make the odds better of making a good decision. So I'm pretty good at taking very strong-willed, opinionated people, getting them in a room, and coming out the other side with a decision that I feel good about. And that uh, that's taken a long time to get to that. But that's a that's a superpower once you get it. Yeah, not everybody can do that. Not everybody wants to do that. And um that's having not only self-confidence, but also the ability to listen to diver- divergent opinions and be able to synthesize that down to, all right, what's most important? What is what is the long-range vision? So I'm sure that served you well in the military, and it also probably served, served you well in business. Now, and, and listen, you know, you know this having served uh, at you know, the highest levels of government, but the big decisions are pretty much, you know, there's a, a lot of, a lot of, and I say, not say all decisions, but lots of decisions are 55, 45 decisions. Right, right. You know, it's very, it's very rare that the decisions are so obvious that everybody just agrees to them because those kind of decisions are already made. But, yeah. but to be a senior person, an executive, a government official, that the most of your time is dedicated to decisions that are actually close calls. And so uh, the question is, how do you make the chances of your decision being a higher probability of being a good decision? And if you start to think of your role as a leader is just a, a high probability decision-making machine, among other things, it, it starts to frame how you think about getting the opinions of others. Well, and that's one of the toughest things about being in Congress is rare to none do you ever get a single subject, single issue vote. You right. know, what I'd have to explain to people is to say, okay, you liked or didn't like this vote. And, you know, it shows up in television commercials, shows up on Twitter. Oh, you voted for this. I say, well, 
you know, there are also 300 other items in that bill. And I had to weigh what was most important of those 300, even though you have to swallow some of the hard parts. You either vote against it, vote for it. There are cases to be made. You're right. It's not a single subject, easy yes or no. Of course, it's black or white. It's We never got those votes. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying that's not how you vote in Congress. It's just they just don't do it. And it uh, we got to work on changing that. Um, uh, All right. Did you have a pet growing up? I did. I had uh, we we lived in the college and we had we had a couple Siberian Huskies, one one right after another. And those um, are great dogs. Man, they like to run. So they would get away and run and get <laughs> crack them down. And, uh, but well, at least great. you lived in the right part of the country. I We spent a lot of time in Arizona, and I feel so bad for these Huskies that people are raising in Arizona. I'm like, why do you – with all yeah. due respect, this Husky belongs up in Pennsylvania or Minnesota or somewhere up north where it's it actually gets cold. You can't have this Husky in Phoenix. Come on. Or even, Tucson. The summer, even the summers in Pennsylvania were too much. <laughs> exactly. All right, two more questions. Um, pineapple and pizza, yes or no? Yes. Oh, David, we were on a roll. <laughs> judges, the judges do not like this answer, but okay. It would be my first choice, but I'm not going to throw out a pizza for a little pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I've had a lot of people say, well, Jason, I just pick off the pineapple. It's fine. It's like, <laughs> anyway, um, there's interesting arguments on this topic. All right, last question. Um, best advice you ever got? Best advice uh, I ever got was if you find somebody that, um, you know, gives you the, you know, the joy and see something in you you don't see in yourself, marry them. And, and I and I did. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, listen, thank you for your service to the country. Thanks for writing this book, Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. I've read through part of it. It's great. In, uh, I love books with pictures that's just me i appreciate you yeah, but didn't you get to see the actual what's going on and anyway good stuff um and uh good luck making the decision it's a tough decision but boy i think there are a lot of people out there that would be fascinated with your uh and supportive of your running again for the united states senate i think you have a lot to offer given your array of experiences and success and and challenges in life too i think that that's all part of it but uh and thanks for your generosity and your time here on the, the Jason and the House uh, podcast. Hey, I do my appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon, Jason. Thank you. Again, I can't thank David McCormick enough. Can't thank him for his service to our country, for the vision that he has for America, for his success. Success ought to be applauded. We ought to be looking at those factors of success and overcoming the challenges in life and making the most of it. That is, you know, the promise of the United States of America. It's the opportunity that is there. Uh, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That doesn't mean people aren't going to fall down. They're not going to hurt. They're not going to, you know, have challenges. Of course they are. But that pursuit of happiness is something that our country promises every person. and, um, And it's something we ought to strive for. But if we don't get our act together and put some things in motion, boy, oof. We're in some, for some even rougher days ahead. So I can't thank David uh, McCormick enough for his time. I'd appreciate it if you would rate this podcast. You have a chance to rate it. We would appreciate that. You can go over to the foxnewspodcast.com for other types of podcasts. And I want to remind listeners that you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. 
And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Again, rate it, subscribe to it, and we'll have another exciting person to come join us next week. But thanks for allowing us to spend part of your precious time with us, and we do appreciate it. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.